Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. A new fishing pole, no pun intended, is ranking every state in the U.S. to figure out the best and worst for fishing in 2021. They have a lot of, of shoreline mileage, um, and they were number two in the number of bait and tackle shops. Lawnlove.com ranked the states in a variety of items. You will be surprised to hear who came out on top. Spoiler alert, I'm upset. Plus, all those fish need a clean environment. What is the health of our tropical waters? Is once you have storm drains and you have a city upstream of um, of those discharges, you get all sorts of uh, you know non-natural things which make it into the bay. Meteorologist Erica Delgado has the story when we kick off, weather or not. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the Seven Weather Team once again to do what we do best, keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the Storm Station, Seven News. South Florida is fortunate to be surrounded by great weather and fabulous fishing. A new ranking of all 50 states shows us pretty high on the list but not number one. I'll bite and take the bait and find out why. We talked to Sharon Sullivan, managing editor of Long Love, to explain. Uh, uh, there was a uh, poll recently published uh, mm -hmm. talking about um, where the states rank as far as fishing is concerned. And as you know, as Floridians, we really take our, our love and our passion for fishing to uh, new, new heights. So uh, first of all, tell us how, what was the method used in arriving at this ranking? Well, <clears throat> let me tell you, first of all, I live in Florida as well. So I live in central Florida and I've been here for years, went to the University of Florida. So I know I fish a lot. And so I, I enjoy a lot of the lakes and rivers here too. Um, but we ranked basically uh, on community, um, which included the number of like fishing licenses that were issued, how many competitions the state has, uh, the number of charter boats and guides that we have. Um, Access uh, included the, uh, the percent of the state that's covered by water, um, shoreline mileage, lakes and rivers, marinas, um, you know, the fishing trails. And then cost was the cost of licenses and tags and all of, all of that that goes along with it. And then supplies. <clears throat> so that includes like fishing gear stores and bait and tackle shops. So um, those are kind of the main categories that we looked at. All right, so I want to start uh, with uh, number 50, <laughs> and okay. that was the great state of Nevada. Why, why, why last? I'd like to stop this interview right here because this has to be the dumbest question I've ever asked. Why would a totally landlocked state come in last? Oh, boy. Now back to the interview. Um, well, obviously there, you know, a lot of the states that ranked at the end were landlocked. Right. Um, 
they don't have a lot of <clears throat> options for uh, rivers and lakes, uh, not like a lot of the states who ranked higher. Um, and so they also don't have a lot of fishing stores. There's not a lot of interest in fishing as much as there is in like Hawaii and Florida and some of the other states that rank higher. So they didn't have a lot of bait and tackle shops, didn't have a lot of fishing gear stores. Um, so it's, they kind of, you know, ranked pretty low in, uh, in those categories and they don't have a lot of <clears throat> community interest. They don't have a lot of fishing contests, tournaments, things like that, you know, high, high-end things that, you know, a lot of dollars, or they have the kids fishing contests and things. Uh, that was not uh, something that was big in a lot of those states that ranked at the bottom. Well, that's just plain sad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I lived for many years in the upper Midwest, um, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, which they too uh, pride themselves in their fishing and their boating. And of course, summers is, is the height of all that because it is so cold <laughs> the rest of the year. Yes. Uh, where where did they rank and and why? Um, they they also ranked kind of at the sort of at the end. Um, we had a bunch of uh, you know states obviously that were uh, we did have one that was Michigan, right? Um, that ranked kind of at the top, which they have a lot of water. They you know obviously the Great Lakes, right? They a lot of, uh, of access to that. So um, that was kind of the main, um, the main thing for, for states like that. But yes, it's, it's hard because most of the Southwest and central, you know, states were, um, you know, hindered by a little bit of the shoreline uh, issue um, because they ranked, they don't have a lot of marinas. They didn't, um, you know, the, the only thing that really saved them a little bit was a number of lakes and rivers and things that they have. Um, but just, it, it was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the interest, uh, the, the cost, the licenses that went out, how many ish were issued um, and, you know, the tournaments and things that kind of uh, hindered some of those states. So is there a big difference between fresh uh, water fishing and saltwater fishing and in that play a part in the, in your ranking as well yes well i think you know a lot of the states that ranked at the top um have access to both um so they have the lakes and they have the rivers for the freshwater but they also have access to the atlantic or the gulf um for the saltwater fishing and you know, if you're a hardcore fisherman, you have a preference usually, whether you like fresh water or salt water. Um, uh, you know, you you have a better option and um, selection of fish. If you're fishing uh, salt water, you can catch some crazy fish out there that, you know, wouldn't imagine you would catch. Whereas if you're, you know, in a lake, um, it's, you know, you're mostly bass fishing, but you never know what you're going to get. And, um, and then, you know, of course, in the Gulf, there's a lot of, you know, scalloping, you know, you go through scalloping season. And um, <clears throat> so everybody has a, a preference for, for what they, you know, like to do. Of course, the licenses are different, you know, right. you know, freshwater, uh, you know, you, you pay for one a license, saltwater is a little bit more. Um, and sometimes, you know, the states allow you to 
not have a license and go out and fish and kind of generate an interest in fishing. Um, you know, try to get people out there to do that more, but um, there's definitely a difference. Usually people who fish on a regular basis have a preference. They're either freshwater people or they're saltwater people. Now, did we take into account uh, sport fishing as opposed to my regular fishing? Is there a big difference as uh, uh, who is more active? Yeah, we did not take into account a lot of sport fishing. We did this more on a recreational basis. Okay. Um, but I mean, obviously the licenses do include people who are, you know, sport, sport right. fishing. But um, <clears throat> we looked at it more from, um, you know, and it did take a look at the competitions. And there, you know, there are people who are very hardcore who do a lot of uh, fishing tournaments. So, um, but we mostly focused on the recreational aspect of it. All right. So I was surprised, and maybe not, but I, I was surprised <laughs> that number one was Alaska. Explain <laughs> to me why our friends, our neighbors, our brethren state <laughs> came in number one above Florida. Yeah, I was a little surprised too. And honestly, the thing that shocked me about Alaska, not only, you know, the weather, it's it's colder up there, but right. I mean, people do go up there on vacation and they do take advantage of fishing, just like Florida. I mean, a lot of the charter things in Florida, uh, Florida most people who are residents of Florida are not the ones taking the charters. Usually it's the tourists who right. take the so I think that's kind of the same in Alaska. They, you know, ice fishing and all that, that's stuff that people do when they go on vacation to Alaska. Um, but they have the most fishing licenses issued, which is kind of an interesting thing. They uh -huh. even Florida, Florida um, actually ranked 36 out of um, 50 states for the number of licenses issued, which I was very shocked. I did, I did not hear that. I will not. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I know. Um, but Alaska was number one in that. And they also um, were number one in, uh, you know, their coastal and landlocked status. Obviously, they have a lot of, of shoreline mileage. Um, and they were number two in the number of bait and tackle shops in the, wow. in the so um, and number three for the number of uh, fishing guides and charters, which, you know, that it plays a big uh big part too but florida actually got number one in that um we beat alaska out in the number of uh <laughs> charters and guides so but they alaska they weren't too far behind they were number three all right so it appears that in the ranking we came in at number five and i i also there was a line here in your uh, in your ranking that says that we are the self-proclaimed fishing capital of the world how could we come in at number five yeah, I know. The I was surprised at that. Like I said, the number of fishing licenses issued was um, was a little bit shocking to me. Um, they, you know, we came in at number six, 36 out of 50 states. Um, <clears throat> the other thing was uh, the cost of the fishing licenses. First, mm. the higher end of, of that compared to most states. Um, Rhode Island and Hawaii and places like that and Alaska had really low costs for their fishing licenses, we actually ranked uh, 27 um, out of the 50 states. And then, um, which this is also surprising to me, we had a good number of bait and tackle stores. Um, we're number 13, but we were ranked 43 for fishing gear 
stores and suppliers. So that was a little bit shocking to me as well, because you would think that there would be a lot more uh, suppliers for uh, right. tackle and rods and things like that. All right. So what, one, one final thing. Uh, on your uh, little article here, it also says that um, the expert take one of you know the things that they looked for what is the best time of year to go fishing uh what are the best methods for fishing but the one that's that struck me close to home is uh what is the best weather for fishing now you would think that we would have the best weather for fishing year round as opposed to alaska <laughs> uh, again so why why are we number five i'm still trying to plug in for number one here <laughs> No, I, I understand. I, I like that too. I think, you know, a lot of it is depending on what type of fishing that you're doing as well. Um, you know, the weather, obviously you're, you know, if you're talking Alaska and you're doing salmon fishing and you're doing, you know, ice fishing, there's certain type of fish that, you know, you're going to catch uh, during that time when it's colder. Um, but it's always good to go out and it, the heat, is not the best time to do a lot of fishing, like in the heat of the day. So right. even summers in Florida, you know, you got to head out early when it's cooler um, before it gets too hot, because then it's not really the best conditions for fishing. So um, even so, like winters and fall, that's great time to get out early, especially now it's actually cooling off here in, in Florida a little bit. Um, a little bit. A little bit. Well, you're a little bit south of Maine. We're 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 getting a little bit cool, um, but that's kind of the best time to go out um, when it's you know the weather conditions are a little cooler and not as hot. Well, we're we're striving for hoping that next year we could be <laughs> we could be number one. There's always next season. Thank there you is. so much, uh, Sharon Sullivan, for joining us this morning and chit chatting all about fishing. Thank you so much. Thank you. We cannot take a break without giving you the entire ranking. Coming in at number 50, Nevada, 49, Arizona, New Mexico, 48, 47 is Kansas, 46, Nebraska, Utah, 45, 44, Tennessee. Coming in at number 43 is South Dakota, Colorado, moving in at 42, Arkansas, 41, 40, Kentucky, West Virginia, 39. 38 in Vermont, 37 Iowa, Washington, 36 Virginia, number 35, 34 is Idaho, Wyoming coming in at 33, Oklahoma, 32, 31 Missouri, Texas at 30, 29 is Oregon, Pennsylvania, 28, 27, that's California, Mississippi, 26, North Dakota at 25, 24 Georgia, 23 is Illinois, New Jersey, 22, 21, Indiana, New York at 20, 19 is New Hampshire, 18, South Carolina, Montana in at number 17, Ohio, 16, 15, that'll be Connecticut, number 14, Maryland, North Carolina comes in at 13, 12, that'll be Delaware, 11, Minnesota, now we're in the top 10, Alabama, 9. Louisiana, Massachusetts, 8. 7. Wisconsin, 6. is Hawaii, number 5. is Florida, 4. Rhode Island, 3. is Maine, 
number two, Michigan, and number one, Alaska. We'll be right back. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the Storm Station 7 News. Our marine life needs their ecosystem to be clean and healthy. But unfortunately, that is not the case many times. Meteorologist Erica Delgado tests the waters. South Florida, a little piece of paradise with pristine beaches, a tropical climate, and clear waters. At least most of the time. But have you ever been surprised to find our waters not as clear as everyone claimed they would be? What exactly could be happening underwater to affect the visibility and clarity of our waters? Maybe it has nothing to do with what's below the surface and everything to do with what goes on above the water. I thought I knew the answers until I had the privilege to speak to Dr. Sam Perkis, professor and chair of the Department of Marine Geosciences at the Rosenthal School at the University of Miami, where he shared his knowledge on what exactly affects the visibility of our local waters. Here's what he had to say. And joining me today to clear up all of our water visibility questions across South Florida is Dr. Sam Perkis, professor and chair at the Rosenthal School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Miami. Dr. Perkis, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Erica, it's a great pleasure. Pleased to be here. All right, well, let's dive right in. So South Florida is known for its tropical climate and, of course, our beautiful waters. But at times, the visibility in our local waters changes and can be a bit more murky. Is this just luck or I'd say bad luck on any given day or are we actually seeing a caused change in the visibility of our waters? Well, that's a great question. So the visibility of our waters does change a lot and there's a multitude of factors which affects that. You've got uh, natural factors that affect the water clarity. So examples of that would be the phytoplankton in the water. Those are the tiny microscopic uh, organisms, um, the sort of things that whales eat. We call them phytoplankton, and they change seasonally, and they affect the water clarity. You've got the runoff from the land when it rains. Rivers discharge sediment, not so much uh, in Miami, but uh, a little bit. And because of the curious water chemistry that we have in Miami, you also get the precipitation of what we call lime mud, tiny grains of limestone uh, naturally. So those were, those were all natural reasons why the water clarity can change. And then of course, you've got the human caused reasons such as pollution. You get wastewater discharge from the city, including sewage. Desalination, if it's ongoing, produces brines, and that can affect the clarity of the water. All of the storm drains in the city when it rains wash into the bay. And as you notice on the weekend, if you have a lot of uh, boating activity, mm -hmm. that can stir up the sediment on the seafloor, particularly with the shallow waters that we have in Key Biscayne. And finally, for sort of human factors affecting the clarity of the water, you've got coastal development, and beach renourishment, if that's going on, where you're pumping a lot of sand on for beach, that can also cause a lot, a lot of turbidity. So there's really many factors 
which play into that? You know, it's uh, one of the reasons you just mentioned, it's funny that you're saying that. I remember when uh, at the start of COVID, when lockdown began here in South Florida, and of course, because of that, many of the county parks were closed. So there wasn't as much launching of boats as we normally see here. And we were out in the water one day and not many boats were. And I did notice how clear the water did look. And I, I, I just assumed it was just one of those days, but I guess it really had to do with the boat traffic around our bay waters. Yes, it makes, it makes a huge difference. You know, I, I cycle to work uh, in the morning to uh, the Rosenstiel School here over the Rickenbacker Causeway, and you get a great view over the bay. And just by looking at the clarity of the water during the week when there's not many boats, it tends to be quite clear, but at the weekend, I mean, it's very murky because there's so many boats and the water is really shallow. So their engines, they just stir up the seafloor. Yeah, I guess that that really makes sense. You also mentioned the uh, phytoplankton in our waters. And I know we've been running stories lately about uh, fish fish kills here in um, across our bay waters. I mean, is that related? Is that something that, that could really affect it as well? Well, yeah, I mean, the, there's all sorts of organisms, microorganisms that live in the water, and some of them uh, produce toxins, uh, and we call these harmful algal blooms, which can kill fish, and, uh, you know, in, in huge numbers, but they can also cause problems, more direct problems for humans, that those toxins can be aerosolized, and they get into the air that we breathe, and they can cause uh, severe allergic reactions and so. And it's not unrelated to what we're talking about because when we wash a lot of nutrients out of the city into the water, that causes all phyt phytoplankton to bloom, uh, including the harmful ones. And that's how you know, runoff is related to these problems that we're now facing. You mentioned that runoff earlier. And I, I noticed when we have, I mean, we're all familiar with our everyday summer afternoon thunderstorms here in South Florida, but after a longer duration rain event, I've noticed, you know, especially, I spend a lot of time Northern Miami-Dade, but just near Olita River, uh, the water just seems a lot darker than it normally does uh, when it hasn't been raining as much. Yes, yeah, for sure. And uh, of course, whatever, it rains and rivers become more active, there's natural detritus that makes it from the land into the sea. The trouble is, is once you have storm drains and you have a city upstream of, um, of those discharges, you get all sorts of uh, you know, non-natural things which make it into the bay. And that's why it's so important to pick up litter and so on and so forth, because once that makes it into the storm drains, which it inevitably does, it's only a matter of time before the next rainstorm brings it into the bay. So, uh, you know, uh, with, with terrible effects to our water quality and the organisms that live here. Of course. And, and I know you, you briefly touched on it just a few minutes ago, you know, with all the construction going up in the city and just along the bay waters there. We've seen our problems of some of that just kind of running off into the bay waters as well. And I know that that's caused an issue within the last few months, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Yeah, it causes a, it causes a huge issue. And the other problem we're facing is that the storm drains weren't designed to work with the sea level rising. So as the, you know, we have sea level rise at the moment, and as it rises, the, the seawater actually comes up through the storm drains as opposed to uh, you know, fresh water running down into the ocean. And so 
the storm drains are flushed much more regularly just by tidal motion. It doesn't even have to be raining that hard or raining at all because the tides are starting to flush beneath the city through the uh, storm drains and bring all of that detritus daily out into the bay. You know, I'm glad you just mentioned the, uh, the tide changes because, you know, we all hear about high tide, low tide on any given day, but how exactly does the ebb and flow of an incoming and outgoing tide cause a shift in the quality or the visibility of the waters? Because we definitely see a difference coming in and out of the inlets. Yes, for sure. Well, I mean, I think the first thing to recognize is that the tides here in Miami are really quite minor. I mean, we have sort of give or take a foot or so is, is the tidal range, a little bit higher on the king tides. Compared to other places around the world, like the Bay of Fundy, for example, has a 50 foot tide. So, yeah. you know, we, we have quite minor tides, but even raising the sea level by a foot on the incoming tide, you just think of the vast, vast quantities of water which are lifted up into Biscayne Bay and onto the continental shelf here. And as the tide rises, that, that produces currents. And when the tide falls, all of that water has to make its way out of Biscayne Bay and off the, off the continental sh shelf. So we can start to get tides forming and those tides become focused between islands and in channels. And they can get to quite a substantial velocity enough to start to move sediment on the seafloor and loft it up into the water column and therefore decreasing the visibility. So the tide, the, when the tide starts to run, as we call it, and that could be on the flood tide or the ebb tide, you tend to get a decrease in the visibility in the water. Okay, yeah, we've definitely seen that. Now I know, you know, living here in South Florida, just like we don't have much change in the tides, we don't really have much change in the seasons either, um, at least not like the rest of the country, but we do get something here in South Florida. And we definitely notice the difference in temperature or maybe air mass changes, not as humid. What about the seasons across South Florida? Does that have any impact on our visibility across our waters? Well, it, it can have a big impact actually. So uh, a lot of the, um, the phytoplankton that I mentioned earlier, which decrease water clarity, they certainly are more prolific in the summer when the water is warmer and the sunlight is brighter. I mean, they photosynthesize like plants. And so the summer conditions are more conducive to their growth and we tend to get a reduction in visibility um, because of that. A lot of the creatures that live on the floor of the seafloor around Miami, they're tropical, tropical algae, and microscopic organisms that produce shells and so on and so forth, they are also grow more actively during the summer and their skeletons and shells break down to form calcareous mud, limestone mud, if you will. And so that production is greater in the summer and that can lead to a decreased uh, visibility in the water. And of course you have hurricanes. I mean, just like boats can stir up the seafloor when we have hurricanes or storms in the summer, that of course reduces visibility a lot. But in saying that in the winter, you can get these strong winds, cold winds that come from the north and they can also produce uh, turbidity because the water is so shallow. And once the waves start to build, they also stir, stir up the sea floor. So I suppose to summarize the, the turbidity tends to be uh, higher in the summer. So the visibility is less in the summer, but you could also have turbid days in the winter as well. I'm glad you mentioned the wind direction here in South Florida. You know, we normally have 
I guess our predominant wind direction is off the water, but we have times where we do have that, that offshore flow. I mean, does that affect the visibility at all? Maybe a, a southwest wind you know, versus some kind of southeast wind that we're used to seeing? Well, it, it can make a difference, yes. And in particular, when you get the wind blowing off of the ocean, that can bring a lot of material from the open ocean onto into the coastal zone and onto the beaches. Uh, just as you see that the, is it the purple flags that go up on the beach for harmful marine life when it marine brings life. in, yeah, yep. it brings in the Portuguese man of war and the blue bottles, those jellyfish come in with those sort of winds. Well, so does a lot of seaweed actually. Uh, sargassum is the name of the seaweed and it can pile up quite thick on our beaches. And that starts to degrade as well, releasing nutrients, which encourages the phytoplankton to grow and the, the turbidity to increase. So when you get a wind from the ocean, yes, it does bring things into the coastal waters, which otherwise wouldn't be there. And that can be a factor that decreases the visibility. It's funny you mentioned that seaweed. I feel like just in the past few years, we've really seen an increase in that across our beaches, um, especially during the summer. Yeah, it's, it's um, all through the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean, this seaweed is turning up in like in vast quantities compared to just a few years ago. And why it's doing that is unclear. It's probably related to increased nutrient concentrations in the waters, but it's becoming a big problem, particularly so in the Bahamas, where the beaches are having to be cleared. It's very expensive. It's not always effective. And it's just something else that we now have to deal with in the changing world. Now, you mentioned the, the seaweed, you know, coming also having being a problem across the Gulf of Mexico. Now, do you think it's actually being pushed our way uh, by the Gulf Stream? Well, it's certainly, yes, moving up from the Gulf of Mexico on the loop current and the Gulf Stream, which comes into our waters. And of course, the Gulf Stream meanders. Sometimes it brings that material closer to shore, sometimes not. But if you add into that a strong wind blowing off of the ocean, it's a very effective way to get this detritus out of the Gulf Stream and onto the beaches. Talking to you today just makes one realize that it's not just one direction or just change in seasons that changes the visibility across our waters. There's so many external factors and like some of them uh, natural and some of them human uh, that really affect our waters here. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely the case. And, you know, trying to predict uh, what the water clarity is going to be like is, is a very difficult thing indeed, because there is just so many factors that play into it. And some of them, uh, you know, operate on fairly long time scales like the seasons and others are more random related to what's growing in the water, the wind direction, where the Gulf Stream is and the number of boats which are sailing around and whether it's rained recently. I mean, it's a very, very complex system indeed. Complex is definitely the word I would have used. Dr. Perkis, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us and for sharing your knowledge on the marine conditions, specifically the visibility across our waters here in South Florida. We hope to speak with you again soon. Best of luck to you. Erica, thank you so much. The Seven Weather Team would like to thank Dr. Perkis and his team at the Department of Marine Geosciences at the Rosenthal School at the University of Miami for taking the time to speak with us. Your knowledge has shed some light and cleared up any misconceptions we may have had on what exactly affects our South Florida waters. That's all for now. From the 7 Weather Team, I'm meteorologist Erica Delgado. Next week on Weather or Not, Mangrove Forests. 
They are the first line of defense for coastal communities, and after Hurricane Irma in 2017, about 80% were able to survive. Most of the dead trees were in areas where salty ocean water couldn't drain away, submerging mangrove forests for months. Miami Native Assistant Professor at East Carolina University and Assistant Scientist at Coastal Studies Institute joins Whether or Not next week as we talk about the mangrove forests of southern Florida and how they were impacted by Hurricane Irma. We will discuss how remote sensing has helped provide answers on what happened, how this has changed the coastline, and what it means for the mangrove ecosystem. Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez has the story on our next edition of Weather or Not, which drops October 19th. If you have a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pfarrow at wsvn.com. Also, it would be nice if you would subscribe to our podcast. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7Weather, and of course, live on air at WSVN7. Thanks for joining us. Please tell your friends about us. We need all the listeners we can get. Until next time, I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell.